Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, who's the founder and CEO of Build Change, sits down with me today. She's a skilled bricklayer, she's an engineer, and Build Change saves lives in earthquakes and typhoons. Let's hear about it now. Thank you, Elizabeth, for coming and sitting down with us here in the studio. It's a pleasure. So you and I already know each other because we, uh, I guess we have to be fully disclosed here like NPR does, you know, on the, the, their stations. <laughs> like we, we love Build Change and we're, we try to champion Build Change. But so my first question for you is you launched Build Change in 2004 after a Fulbright scholarship. And when was it you said to yourself, Yes, Houston, we've got something here. Like this is, now we've got a solution. When did it really stick? That's great. I, it's great to be here, Jeff. Thanks so much for the invitation. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, when did we say, Houston, we've got a problem? No, that, no, a solution. Oh, a solution, yeah, a solution. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. The solution, yeah, the solution was on my Fulbright Fellowship in, in, in 2002, 2003 in India, where I saw that there's a right way of rebuilding houses that really works, and there's a not-so-good way. And mm. so the solution was sort of right there. It needed to be scaled and spread throughout the world, but the solution, these solutions exist. Yeah, and, and so how did you get the Fulbright Scholarship? How was that path uh, I, developed? Yeah, I grew up in a small town outside of Chicago, and my, neither of my parents went to college. My dad owned a small business doing masonry construction, and so my summer mm-hmm. job in high school and college was working for my dad as a bricklayer. Right. And then I, I moved out here uh, to go to grad school at Berkeley and study civil engineering. And while I was in grad school, there was an earthquake in India that killed about 20,000 oh. people. And that earthquake really got my attention that so many people died because their house collapsed on them. And here I was studying engineering. I've got this experience as a builder. And yeah. I thought there's got to be something that I can do about this problem and help to solve it. And so I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship. And after I finished grad school, went over to India to, to learn and understand how people were rebuilding. Were they rebuilding in a way that was culturally appropriate? that the architecture was appropriate for the climate and lifestyle? Were they building resilience into the architecture? Um, were they working to prevent disasters from happening in the future? Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe give some context of uh, the listeners. So what does build change? What's the uh, overall goal? And then I've got some questions uh, that, uh, that I've developed over the years listening to these stories. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us that? Yeah, build change. We save lives in earthquakes and hurricanes by working with people, governments, engineers, homeowners, builders, everyone in the supply chain to design and to build and to finance houses and schools so they don't collapse in earthquakes and typhoons. Mm -hmm. So... And do you keep developing new new ways of solving these problems or is there kind of, you know, one path you you keep going forward, uh, one solution you keep pushing forward? Yeah, that's a great question because we right now we operate in in six, almost seven countries, uh, three in Asia, three in Latin America, six to seven because we're just about to start working in Mexico. And it's the same problems, the same challenges. I mean, these are completely uh-huh. different parts of the world, different cultures, but people have the same challenges, both with accessing financing 
and with being able to design and build safely. But we find that there's some the same solutions, right? I mean, things like making sure you connect your columns and beams together mm-hmm. is sort of a universal problem yeah. that we see, but there are solutions that right. apply around the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, didn't you say one time that you would find, like, you know, nothing wrong with Red Cross or, the, I mean, whatever, but the, there's like, there'll be structures built by different organizations after a disaster. And then you would go back and you'd find in those communities that they would be living next to the structure because they didn't uh-huh. know how it was built and they didn't believe that it would be safe for their family. So they're like living in a lean-to next to a concrete structure. Can yeah, you, you tell. That? Yeah, that's a great story. That's one of my favorite stories to tell. That was from India, where um, the it, it, after the 1993 earthquake in Maharashtra, the government used a very top-down approach. They basically came in with contractors and built the same house for everyone, and without the homeowners being involved. And they didn't really check the construction quality. They weren't making sure the building was built according to the code and the specification. And the homeowners didn't trust that the house was built safely. They didn't believe that the contractor used enough cement in the concrete. And so they were sleeping outside 10 years later when I visited there. 10 years later? Yeah, 2003, yeah. That's crazy. It is crazy. And so, you know, not all... Nobody could do an outreach and say, you know, go back around and walk them through the process. Like, not even any of those attempts were made, it sounds like. Well, see, yeah. And the, the Indian government learned a huge lesson from that experience. And then when the Gujarat earthquake came along in 2001, they changed their approach and and they really embraced the homeowner and engaged them in the process. They used what we, what we use, which is a cash plus technical assistance approach where people are given cash grants and they make the decisions about materials, about architecture, about where is their door. They're involved in the construction supervision. They know how to check. Is there enough cement in the concrete? And so the Indian government really sort of shifted their mindset after this experience. And they really were one of the first governments in the world to promote this kind of more inclusive approach. And it's really a great example of, of the, the right way of doing it. So, you know, this is what build change promotes. We promote decision equity. We mm-hmm. promote the homeowner to make the decisions about materials and architecture and for them to engage in this process, which is different than sweat equity. There are other organizations out there that promote sweat equity, mm-hmm. which is basically just requiring the homeowner to work as unskilled labor mm-hmm. and not be involved in the decisions, not being able to choose the materials and architecture, which That's is cool. not a, it's not a good approach that right. way because you know, we want the homeowners to really own this. It's yes. their house. They should choose where's mm. their toilet. They should choose where is their door. And they should be confident that the builder is building correctly. So we coach them through that process. Plus, we're working with a lot of homeowners who are not construction workers. They're farmers or, or they're fishermen and women. And they need to be able to go out and earn their income, right? Uh-huh. So we don't want to push them into, you know, not working so that they, you know, they have to work on their house instead. And we also want to take the opportunity to train a local builder who's really a builder, you know, Mm -hmm. someone who has decided to become a construction worker and earn their income that way. We don't want to displace them from having the income opportunity of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, working on a house and building a house. So these um, projects are done, you know, one at a time or 10 at a time. And these contractors that are local, I mean, they can't just beef up and do 10 at a time for two years. Do they just kind of do like for 10 years, do two at a time? Is that sort of the approach for the workload? It depends on the context. Um, We've Uh had 
Um, we've had in China, after the 2008 earthquake, we had these small teams of contractors that would do eight or 10 houses at the same time. That's about how much they could handle mm -hmm. in small groups. And then mm -hmm. they would move on to the next batch of eight or 10 if they did a good job in the first eight or 10. So, yeah. you know, we're kind of building incentives into the process. Um, in Haiti, we've had sort of single individuals, single builders who then move from one house to another to another. It depends on the context. Mm. In Colombia, we're working with a little bit larger scale contractors. But again, that program is looking like it's going to be in groups of eight or 10 at once, that sort of thing. But it gives us a great opportunity to train the builders on the job. You know, you know, we do a lot of training. We've trained something like 25,000 people worldwide in basics of safe construction, but you can't train someone how to build a house by just showing them how to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, my dad sort of taught me how to lay bricks on the job, but, you know, I had to practice it in order to get good at it. Yeah. And so it's the same thing. So we need to provide opportunities for builders to build their skills on the job rather than just in a classroom. And your social enterprise. Yes. So at what percentage of, because the money is to build all these houses and rebuild, is at what percentage derived from government assistance, from local government assistance, versus maybe donations you might um, receive? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So we have several earn, several streams of income. One is straight philanthropy. Because, uh -huh. you know, Build Change, we are a social enterprise. We are a nonprofit. We operate a little bit like an engineering company. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, we're working with clients that really can't pay for our services. And right. so we're providing those services at a discount or for free. And so we're supplementing that by philanthropy. Um, we also do get paid by some government partners, although they usually can't cover our costs either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, we're working in a market that is, you know, doesn't really work. Um, mm -hmm. We're working with informal neighborhoods with um, lower income homeowners. And so we rely on philanthropy to, to make up the difference. Got it. Um, so you told me you were from Illinois and before graduate school, you were in the engineering industry or engineering consulting. I got that. My very first, well, my first job was working for my dad as a bricklayer, but my first real job after that, I worked for Peterson Consulting, which is now Navigant in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And our client was a major waste disposal firm that was, that was having to pay, insure, ha having to um, require, request their insurance companies to pay for cleaning up contamination to groundwater from leaky landfills. So, well, why, why is there so much leakage in the first place can't we build landfills in a way that they prevent this leakage from happening or can't we create recycling oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. pull materials out of the waste stream and that sort of yeah. thing and but this is you know this is back in the 90s Got it. sort of you know when environment when sort of their the environmental movement was really you know uh -huh. it was really strong but the interesting thing was that i wanted to continue to study this and i came i landed here in the bay area my first semester um at cal in the civil engineering program. And I said to one of the professors, I really want to study landfills. And, and he was like, oh my gosh, you have more enthusiasm for landfills than anybody else ever. Well, kind of, <laughs> kind of, yeah. But then he also said, been there and done that. We've figured uh -huh. that out. Oh, really? Earthquakes is where, it, oh, really? where it's at. Yes. Oh, that's cool. And so just completely opened my mind to yeah. both the, um, you know, the state of the practice of earthquake engineering as well as the gaps that still exist. And there really hasn't been um, robust studies on how to retrofit masonry, informally built, simple masonry buildings in this emerging world context. Right. You know, 10 years ago, people said it couldn't be done. People said, you can't retrofit these buildings. And mm -hmm. we've done it. We've retrofitted these types of buildings. We're scaling these retrofit programs. And we've shown that you can actually do it affordably, 
um, in a way that's locally appropriate. There's still some questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can easily do single and two-story, maybe some three-story buildings, but in Bogota and uh, Medellin, in Colombia, we're dealing with some three, four, five-story buildings. Are you? Yes. That gets complicated. It gets complicated and expensive to use the sort of, you know, standard cement and rebar solutions. Uh And so lately we've been looking at innovative, innovative solutions for retrofitting these buildings. We keep talking about, is there a magic paint out there that we can just spray? Or is there a vine that we can grow around the building that would prevent it from collapsing? So we really need you know, we need more innovation there. So if any of your listeners have ideas, I'd love to hear them. That's cool. And um, you know how there's always a reaction to every action? Mm -hmm. And on that that social uh, question, you know, maybe there's benefits and things that happen. Once you've gone into community and you've made some houses safer, have there been any examples of, you know, different different reactions to your actions that you, that surprised you? Yeah, that, that, Yes. What I love to see happening is when we work with one homeowner to retrofit and then the neighbors all want the same thing. I mean, that's really kind mm-hmm. of a chain reaction that we're trying You're to start. looking for. Yeah, we're looking for. I remember we did one of the first houses we worked with in China. Um, there was a, you know, we're dealing with masonry homes. And so for a masonry home to withstand an earthquake or a typhoon, you need, you know, you need a good amount of solid wall, like mm-hmm. without large openings mm-hmm. in both directions. But, you mm-hmm. know, we can't, promote people to just live in a bunker with no windows and doors, that's not Mm going to be appropriate either. Mm -hmm. And so in China, there was this preference to have the window and door, these large openings right next to each other. So we can't come along and say, Mm -hmm. okay, block in your opening. Mm -hmm. Instead, we figure out a way of reinforcing it. And Mm -hmm. so we worked with this one homeowner who had this this situation, large window and door. And so we worked with her to put a ring beam, a lintel beam over the top and connect everything together. And then she told us that her neighbors all wanted that too. Yeah. yeah. And that's the chain reaction that we like to, we like to see and we like to promote. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you paint a picture of uh, what the neighborhoods even look like in Bogota or in China, as you just referenced? I mean, are these, you know, one story buildings, are they uh, paved streets, non-paved? Are there, is, there, is it a farm sort of environment? Is it inner city? You know, what, what would, could you paint a picture for us? All of the above. Uh-huh. We've worked in all of the above. So our, we did our first program in Indonesia after the tsunami. And this was uh-huh. mostly rural in, in the rice paddies in Indonesia. So they were single. Non-coastal. like inland? It was coastal. It was yeah, coastal, coastal and, and a little bit further inland. Uh-huh. And we've also done work up in the hills where all the wonderful Sumatran coffee is grown in Takangan. There was another earthquake mm. there a, a few years later. But these are single family homes, tall walls high-pitched roofs because it's very hot there and people don't have air conditioning, uh, but they're mostly single-family confined masonry or wood frame homes. In mm-hmm. China, it was, uh, again, we were out in the farmland, and so there were sort of groups of homeowners, eight to ten together, clustered together in the middle of, um, middle of the farmland, and again, single and two-story buildings. Bogota and Medellin are a completely different story. We're in the mm-hmm. middle of urban, informally built neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And some of these places are just crazy. The plots are all str- strange shapes, triangular, really? trapezoids. They're not uniform. And because there hasn't been regulation on building, you'll see the ground floor um, 
will be one plan and then the second floor will stick out over the ground floor and so the building ends up looking kind of like an inverted layer cake or an inverted uh-huh. wedding oh, oh, cake. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And this is these are scary buildings. Oh, I mean bats. these are the buildings that keep me up at night. Right? Their are, overhangs aren't yes. engineered properly. Yeah. And they've got heavy <laughs> walls on them. They've got what? Heavy walls out on, top on, on the cantilever. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um <laughs> So, yeah. I'm laughing only because I've been in uh, northern India, and mm-hmm. I've got like a picture of this house. Yeah. It was it, it, just what you're saying. I mean, it was on a hill, sloped, and um, maybe eight stories at its apex, oh. and then down to one story or mm-hmm. two on its yeah. uh, and, you know, at the uphill side, getting bigger all the time mm-hmm. as it grows out. It's just like, it just looks crazy. Yep. Um, and... Can you also? Show, I think you worked in Nepal too, right? Yes, you, yes. You still, mm-hmm. Those seem to be really romantic, at least in my mind. They've got these old uh, brick um, walls, and you know, but but the structure is not is ill-equipped to actually do its job. But but there's like two layers, and you talked once about how uh, the the family lives on the second, or the like grains on the third, so maybe the third stories, mm-hmm. and the, the animals are on the first. Can you tell us about what those structures look like? Those structures are those sort of picturesque yeah. st- structures that you see on the hillsides of, of, of throughout Nepal. And they're stone masonry, usually sometimes with cement mortar, but more often with mud mortar. Mm. And they're these rectangular shaped buildings that are two and a half story and the livestock is on the ground floor and family lives on the next floor up and then store grains on the top usually. And what's interesting is that you stand kind of across the valley from these structures and you see them and, you know, it's like this beautiful Nepal picturesque hillside. Mm-hmm. And then you get close and you see the cracks in, in these buildings. In the mortar or in the mud mortar yes. or, or in the brick itself? Not in the stone, like yeah. in the, yeah, in along the joints. Yeah. And so there are thousands and thousands of these buildings that, that, were, like that. that were damaged. Oh, by the earthquake, but oh. not totally destroyed. Got it. And from far away, it looks like they're fine. You get up close and you see these cracks and they're yeah. getting worse. You know, every rainy season that comes along, every monsoon season yeah. that comes along, now that these buildings are cracked, the water, the rainwater gets in and erodes the mortar even more. Right. So when we recognized this, um, we decided to develop a retrofit solution for this type of building. And what's been so interesting and cool about it is that we've done that now. And we've helped to convince the government to not only give financial support to the people that have a completely destroyed home, mm-hmm. but also to give the same amount of financial support to the people who have this type of building to retrofit it. Before it. It's too late. Exactly. And yeah. to preserve the value of the asset. So, you know, yeah. we estimate it would cost like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 to replace these buildings, to tear them down and replace them, maybe more. But for about $3,000, we can retrofit it and save that asset. Yeah. And if a family tears it down and only has $3,000, I mean, they can basically build a, just you know, like a little one-room building. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how do we preserve the value of that asset for the, for the homeowner. And we've also done a great, if you're able to put a link on the website with, um, with the podcast, yeah, yeah. we have a, a VR experience where you can walk through the neighborhood of one of these villages, Ecclefont Village, where you can walk into one of the houses that we've retrofit. Mm-hmm. And you can see the retrofit. You can also see the Revit model of mm. the retrofit, which is really a cool. very cool Make thing sure to see. And then you can walk down through the village and you can see a damaged house. And then you mm-hmm. can walk a little bit further and you can see a house that's under construction that's being retrofitted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, 
I'm just so in awe about what we can do now with these visualization tools, both just the virtual reality as well as the capture, as well as Revit, using Revit. And what we've done with Revit, Revit is also interesting because you know, a lot of these buildings, I say there are thousands and thousands of buildings that are pretty much the same. They're rectangular, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the windows are in a different place or something like that, but we've programmed within Revit the retrofit rules. Right. So an engineer can go out and survey the building, they can sort of input the plan dimensions, and then we automate the retrofit design, right? And yeah. it turns red when we've, you know, when we've not included enough you know, uh -huh, strapping right. or something yeah, like yeah. that. It will spit out a bill of quantity and, mm -hmm. we, and you know, we can make this whole process scalable and more, more fast. Yeah. Faster. Yeah. Fastest. Is that too much detail? I know. No, it's great. No, no, no. You also kind of discuss in this last, uh, your fundraising event of the year, that you're kind of like a startup where you, you need to kind of some seed money, if you will, trying to use those, that language <clears throat> to, you know, kind of prove, uh, you know, that your techniques are working. And then that's when the government then takes off. Is that still an analogy you're looking at? Or to, that's when the government starts to step in when there's some proof. Yes. We're 13 years old, so you'd mm. think we wouldn't need seed funding or startup funding. But every time we go into a new country, we have to demonstrate that it can be done. Even if we've demonstrated it already in Haiti, when we show up in Nepal, we need to show that it can work. Uh -huh. And so we need to build those local relationships, build that trust, you know, make sure the solutions work for the local materials and context. And that does take seed funding or startup funding before governments and other agencies will invest in it to bring it to scale. Mm -hmm. And you have, you're an expert at this. I mean, would you say you're like the expert? Do you, do you find yourselves on being um, asked to be on panels? And, you know, has that been going on for a long time? Do you, do you, are you the resident expert on CNN sometimes or, or what? <laughs> do you have friends at CNN? That, I do have a new friend, yeah, Van Jones. No, the next, <laughs> yes, the next, uh, I think he was an Echoing Green fellow way back when. Um, uh, Echoing Green is one of our largest, or one of our very first donors. You know, mm -hmm. when I, back in the, in the early days when I was trying to figure out what to do after my Fulbright Fellowship, I wasn't sure, should I, should I go to work for one of these agencies building houses? Should I start my own organization? What should I do? And then I applied for a grant from Echoing Green. They provide funding to early stage social entrepreneurs and social justice organizations. They're based out of New York. And we won, and we won this grant. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of the boost of confidence to get Build Change going. So I have that in common with Van, Van Jones. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, so, so, but I'll, okay. I'll introduce, I'm trying to avoid your, your you question about am, <laughs> am I an expert? I'm trying to avoid your question. <laughs> No, I, I didn't know, but, you know, if you're ever invited to, you know, speak to engineering and, yeah. you know, and then specifically because people would find it more interesting that you're doing it in harder places to reach. I, yeah, I, and I think, you know, Build Change is really unique in that we have tried to holistically solve the problem. You know, there are organiza organizations out there who train people. There are organizations out there that provide microfinance. There are organizations out there that write building codes. We're trying to bring it all together. Mm -hmm. The technical solution, the financing solution, the policy solution, what motivates all the stakeholders to build better. We're trying to bring it all together. And I think Build Change is really unique in the world that way. Mm -hmm. I, I do too. Um, okay, so if you had a crystal ball and you were, in control, you were actually in control of the future, but you did demonstrate some restraint, like you didn't just like go for it. 
But you have a crystal ball, you have some control over the future. What would you wish to see build change in 10 years? What would you like to see it? Well, I would like to see a world in which no one dies or becomes homeless because their house or school collapses in an earthquake or a hurricane. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the ultimate goal here, really. Mm-hmm. Um, in 10 years, I think we can achieve um, large-scale strengthening of buildings in at least the six or seven countries where we're in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 10 years, I'd love to see large-scale retrofitting going on in Medellin and Bogota. We are, we're just talking this morning about um, opening some programs in the Caribbean islands affected by the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a goal that um, something like 3 million households become disaster resilient in the next five years. That's a lot. And so... And a lot I, of reach. Yes, I believe we can contribute significantly to that. I would love to Nepal be filled with retrofitted, strengthened, still picturesque, beautiful, beautiful homes. Yeah. And same thing, Indonesia, Philippines, in Manila. We're working Manila. We started working in the Philippines after Typhoon Yolanda, but we've transitioned to Manila to work on strengthening buildings for the effects of earthquakes is also the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so we're... Uh, we've got a very innovative program. We're providing a, a loan, access to a loan for people to strengthen their homes. And at first, I didn't think this was going to fly. I mean, is a is a is a person um, who is you know not considered a wealthy person going to invest in strengthening their homes? And it turns out they are. Hmm. And then what about Puerto Rico and the hurricane devastations? Puerto Rico is a strange thing for us because you know we don't work in the U.S. Yeah, why? Well, because because when I started Build Change, I I, I said, well, we need to work where uh, we're most needed. Uh And the U.S. has building codes. The U.S. has a lot of skilled engineers. The U.S. enforces building codes for the most part and has a higher degree of wealth compared to a place like Haiti or Indonesia where... Um, building codes either don't exist or they're, they're hard to adapt to a single family home. There's a need to build capacity of engineers. There's little or no building code enforcement. And so I wanted us to focus on places where we could add the most value. Yeah. And so we haven't really considered Puerto Rico at this point, but we are considering Dominica, the British Virgin Islands, um, other. But it sounds like you've taken, uh, that answers a question I've never even thought to ask, but I've always been a little bit curious about. And it's, you're trying to reach those who are harder to reach, trying to help the, yes. the people who need it the most. Absolutely. That's admirable. It's great. Thank you. Um, are there any s- uh, social entrepreneur CEOs that are your role models that you kind of use for direction? Martin Fisher from Kickstart mm-hmm. is one of the earliest role models. Uh, Kickstart manufactures markets, um, promotes... Uh, tools and equipment that people in Africa use to create small businesses. And one of their biggest sellers or their biggest sellers are their manually operated irrigation pumps so that farmers can go from subsistence farming to uh, profitable commercial agriculture. And I met Martin in San Francisco um, 17 years ago. Uh-huh. And he was, he opened my mind to the fact how an engineer could do good, how an engineer could use their skills to um, make life better. And he's been an, an inspiration across these years in things like impact monitoring. How do we understand what our impact is? How do we scale our impact? And, you know, remains an, an inspiration to this day. That's cool. 
Okay, now I'm going to move on to uh, your new home. Because you told me all about it. In the side yard. <laughs> Take that, all that knowledge and you're, you're, no, you, what's, your, what's your project you're working on in, in your new house in Denver? Yes, I, I bought a house in Denver in February and I'm just so thrilled to have a home. I mean, for what the work that we do and I have a five and a half year old son and it's just so nice to have this a home and a safe space and it's just great. Um, but it is brand new. And I tried to landscape my side yard on my own this summer, and I, I think I did a pretty bad job. Have you, <laughs> so, have you got living specimens still? I, I have some things that are living. I have some things that are not living anymore. <laughs> but I just painted my fence, too. That was a lot of fun, you know, yeah. with the um, personal well, protective equipment and the sprayer and all that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was great. It was great. It was great. I did it once. I think I'll, you know, have someone else do it next time. But it was, you know, it's just, it's, you know, going through the process of buying a home, you know, reviewing the drawings. I had access to the drawings. Oh, yeah. You must have really gone through with a fine tooth comb. I did. But you know what? (laughs) I still miss things. Oh, really? I missed that the, you know, the, the, the real estate agent forgot to include an oven, right? Uh-huh. Because it was there on the drawing, but it wasn't there in the spec. You There's know? no oven in well, the Well, there eventually oh. was an oven, oh, okay. but, but, I, but, but it was missed through the process. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this was a time-consuming and, you know, busy, interesting thing for me to go through, right? Uh-huh. Because, like, I know a little bit about building houses, and here I still miss something. Right. And so, you know, we're expecting homeowners who, you know, maybe have no experience with housing construction to kind of visualize what we're what we're, what we're going to do with their home mm-hmm. and that's why these these vr tools and the revit tools are so compelling because right. we want the homeowner to make decisions but if they don't understand what we're talking about if they can't see what we're talking about if, if they don't understand that we're asking them okay where would you like this interior wall then it's just harder for them to make a decision so you know i going through this process was you know, builds even more empathy with me for, for the homeowners that we're working with and, you know, the challenges they face. Yeah. Mm. Now I get it. So the Revit is really the tool for the homeowner that's doing the retrofit. It, yes. Part, that's part, part, is a, part of it is just streamlining our process and making it go faster. So right. for our engineers to speed up the process and, and churn through several houses. Part mm. of it is for the homeowners to see what we're going to do to their home. Of course. And part of it is for donors and other people around the world who don't have the opportunity to go visit us in Nepal. You know, they can yeah. click on the link on your website and, and go you know, walk through a village in yes. Nepal. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great question because yeah. you go to all these culturally rich countries, mm-hmm. I would say. Yes, I think they're interesting. Absolutely. Is there anything that sticks out that's super authentic and just cool? Like think Cuba's awesome Chevys that are still around, you know? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you see that you're just like, that is just sweet? You know, unrelated to the buildings, but just in the cultures and neighborhoods you're working in. Anything like that? There's too many. I, I, I don't even know if I can think of one. Well, you know, Indonesia was I lived in Indonesia for several years after the tsunami in the early days, and the seafood was amazing. Oh, wow. And the spicy oh, Sumatran. Oh, I it's just, like lunchtime right now. I absolutely <laughs> loved living in Indonesia. I've loved living in other countries, but it's a very special place. You know, it was the first, was the first build change program. We're still operating there. Um, but the people are just so wonderful, and the food amazing, and the mm. climate so nice and humid, and uh, one of my favorite places in the world. 
That's great. Yeah. Okay, you ready for the lightning round? Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite masonry tool? Trowel. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. But, you know, the line block and the line also yeah. are a very useful, very useful <laughs> piece of equipment that we have tried to introduce in Indonesia. But that's too much information if this is a lightning <laughs> round. Great. Right? I love that you had a, an immediate answer. Like, yeah. um, favorite soil type for buildings, for strong buildings? Oh gosh, we have expansive soils in Denver, so I do not like those. Yeah, uh-huh. a nice, a nice, densely compacted, not saturated sand, right? Oh right. <laughs> Definitely not an expansive clay. Not an expansive clay. No. Gotcha. Um, okay, favorite flower. Oh, favorite flower. Oh my goodness. Uh, Lily. Flower. Um, lavender. Lavender. lavender, lavender absolutely lavender, yes. Uh, favorite color for homes that you have seen in the countries you work in? Build change blue. Oh, whoa. <laughs> we, our logo is blue and green. It was initially just blue. And when uh-huh. we did our first program in Indonesia and we asked people what color paint they wanted, what color they wanted to paint in their house, they said, well, of course, build change blue. Oh, right. So, yeah. Brilliant. I'd like to go back there and see if they're still blue. Or if they <laughs> I mean, that was like 10, or 10 years ago now. Um, a favorite song to work to? <sighs> Another brick in the wall. Pink Floyd. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, wood framing or brick is better? <sighs> For earthquakes or hurricanes? All. I don't know. Oh, my you goodness. You tell me. Both. Wood frame is better for earthquakes, by uh-huh. far. We've been promoting wood frame in Indonesia because the wind speeds are not that high. Uh-huh. But uh, a well-built, confined masonry, not just unreinforced masonry, confined masonry is definitely better for hurricanes. Uh-huh. So I would rather live in a wood building. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, lived, we had a wood house, old Dutch colonial wood building in Indonesia. A little bit hot, um, mm-hmm. but definitely I felt safe there in an earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, favorite city outside of the U.S. not connected to build change? Not San Francisco? Yes, right. Not San Francisco. I can't do this as a lightning round. I have to, I have to, <laughs> I have to, I have to think. We can come back to that. Oh, man. Favorite is Den- is Denver really a mile high or is it almost? Yeah, it's a mile high. Okay. I mean, parts of it are... A little bit below a gotcha. mile. Yeah. Um, who's your favorite comedian or actor that makes you cry, laugh, emit some emotion? Like, which one the most emotion? Oh, man. I'm not used to being asked. Uh, it's, I just pepper them in there, Elizabeth. Will Ferrell, I said. Okay. No, um, no, Over no. me, no. Definitely. <laughs> well, I... I the movie I was crying in recently was Hidden Figures. Okay. So I love that movie. It's just such a wonderful, powerful story about women, African-American engineers and, and oh. scientists succeeding right at NASA. So yeah, oh, that's yeah. The, my most recent movie I was crying in. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's a good answer. Um, why should people... This isn't a lightning round, that was it. <laughs> but why should people join Build, Build Changes community and support the efforts of your organization? To save lives. Because not everyone has access to the knowledge and the technology and the funding to build a safe house. And you know, going through this process of buying a house myself, I realized how precious 
this asset is, both in terms of a financial investment as well as in terms of protecting your family. And not everyone has that opportunity. You know, we've heard stories in Haiti when Hurricane Matthew came through of people just laying on the, on the ground. Mm. They had no protection in that hurricane. And so there's so many people out there in this world that are not protected from these disasters when they happen. And, you know, Californians especially are exposed to this, this mm-hmm. these kind of threats. And so helping to protect other people in the, in the other parts of the world is a very rewarding experience. I was talking with another friend of ours. Actually, I think her husband's on your board. And she was saying that, the, you know, we do a few different philanthropic um, uh, um, well, we've joined forces with a few different organizations, you know, some of them more local and some of them like yours. Mm-hmm. And the, the benefit for us, I think, in, in my heart to helping promote anything that, and everything that Build Change does is that there's this greater community that's the world. Mm-hmm. And then we make the greater world stronger. Mm-hmm. We make ourselves stronger. Just yes. as if you, you didn't just help your neighbor next door, but you helped the one across town. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love it so much, and I thank you. And I'll end with this question, um, which I ask everybody. What is your favorite room in your house, and why? I have two favorite rooms. My office and my bedroom. When I bought the house, I wanted to make sure that those two rooms faced south. Mm-hmm. Because in the winter at this time of year, the sun is just wonderful. It's just right. streaming in, making me feel all warm and cozy and safe. Yeah. Which is what a house should do. Yeah. Great. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much um, for coming. You're wicked smart, <laughs> and I love spending time with you and learning all about this. So um, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was great. Pleasure. Pleasure. Pleasure.